You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, museum's historian and curator. Here at the Spy Museum, we get the world's most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies and intelligence officers, coming in to answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected author debriefings. Hi, good afternoon. Welcome to the International Spy Museum, another one of our author debriefing series. My name is Vince Houghton. I'm the historian and curator here at Spy. And today we are incredibly pleased to welcome David Hoffman, who is a contributing editor at the Washington Post and also a correspondent for PBS's flagship investigative series, Frontline. For the Post, he's done numerous different jobs. He covered the White House under the presidencies of Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush and was subsequently diplomatic correspondent and Jerusalem correspondent. He knows a little bit about his subject matter. Just from 95 to 01, he served as Moscow bureau chief and later as foreign editor and assistant managing editor for Foreign News. He's the author of three books now, The Dead Hand, The Untold Story of the Cold War Arms Race, and The Oligarchs, Wealth and Power in the New Russia. Incidentally, or not incidentally, The Dead Hand won the Pulitzer Prize in 2010. So when you're done reading The Billion Dollar Spy, grab a copy of The Dead Hand. It's a fascinating book. His new book, I just mentioned, is The Billion Dollar Spy, a true story of Cold War espionage and betrayal. Dave, thanks for taking the time to come here to the National Spy Museum and talk to us today. I'm just thrilled to be here. So the book itself, and just to give everybody a a two-sentence synopsis, is the incredible story of a man named Adolf Tolkachev, who was a Soviet engineer who volunteered to spy for the CIA in the 1970s and the 1980s. And because he worked for one of the most important, if not the most important, top-secret industries inside the Soviet Union, uh, he was able to give the U.S. what amounted to a windfall of intelligence information. Now, we'll work our way through his story, but first and foremost, for author debriefings, what I like to do is ask the question to authors, what brought you to this story? The Tolkachev story is not new. It's not just declassified. It's been told in bits and pieces in other books, but nowhere near the extent that you did. But why was now a good time to write this book? Well, these book projects take a long time. This one took six years. So when you say now, it wasn't like I started last week. Um, When the last book was finished, The Dead Hand, I was curious about a few loose ends, things I had discovered in writing that book, one of which was 1985 was a terrible year for the CIA. They lost a lot of really important assets, and mysteriously, one of them was Tolkachev. I mentioned him in passing, but I came across a monograph that a fellow in the CIA had written, largely for training purposes. It was about the tradecraft of the operation, and it was a way to show young trainees how something like this worked. It got declassified in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and I found it. And I thought, wow, this is pretty interesting. It's a monograph of 20-some pages. I thought, what was really behind this? So I found the fellow who had written it. His name was Barry Royden. And I went to him, and I said, Barry, this sounds like it would be a pretty good book. And he said, my goodness. He said, I've been waiting five six years for somebody to come along and try and do this. So together, we went to CIA and said, we'd like to propose this. Barry certainly was helping. I would write the book. But he endorsed the idea. And since he had worked there, we found some sympathy to the idea. A couple of years went by, a couple of years of silence. Nothing happened. And one day, I called up Barry Royden and said, what gives? Uh, you know, I thought you guys were going to help. And he said, wait, wait, don't give up yet. 
there's a new division director in the division that includes former Soviet Union, and he would be interested. And suddenly, things changed. And they started producing documents, and I started doing research. And by 2014, I was almost finished. So it wasn't just now. Right. And you naturally segued into my, my next question is that sources and methods. Anytime we talk about in the, in the intelligence world that has a particular meeting, but for authors, it, it does as well. Like, what kind of new things did you bring to this? New documents you just mentioned. Uh, new access to people that may not have been willing to talk about this beforehand. Well, first of all, the most important thing I had to do is figure out what were the facts of this story. Because a 20-page monograph would not make a book. And the CIA eventually declassified to me 944 pages of operational cables. This is the actual day-to-day -day communications between the Moscow station, where the case officers and the chief of station were running the agent, and headquarters. Now, they have uh, scrubbed this stuff clean. They redacted a lot of lines and pages. But it was enough for me to get a start on the story. Then I went out and tried to find all of those case officers and chiefs of station, several of whom live around Washington, D.C., and painstakingly found them, sat down in their homes, interviewed them at length, sometimes four or five, six times. So I began to create kind of an oral history around the documents. Some of the case officers lived elsewhere in the country. I took the documents to them and I said, look, it says here you did this on so-and-so a date. And they would say, well, I remember. So then I went to Russia. I walked the routes that they walked. I found the parks where they met Tolkachev. I went to Tolkachev's apartment building where he lived because I knew it and tried to picture what was going on. So I expanded my research way beyond the documents. Lastly, and most difficult, the CIA provided no documents about what the spy actually stole from the Soviet Union. The positive intelligence, really the fruits of the spying, remain classified. So, but I couldn't write a book without telling you why the spy was important. So I did my own research by calling experts, again, source reporting, finding people who knew to put together a picture of what the spy actually took. And that was very difficult work because there, I had no documents, nothing in black and white, nothing declassified to go on. Well, we, we chatted about this before we came up, about how frustrating it can be to work with intelligence documents. I, I, I remember my, my research where I'd be reading through a document and get to a line, like, the most important thing you need to know is redacted, 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 redacted. And it's uh, <laughs> like, thanks. Um, but any case like this, just the, the transition to a very important question, I think, uh, when we're talking about a spy, whether it's a good guy, as we, we perceive Tolkachev to be, or a bad guy, Hanson or Ames, is, is what, what is the motivation? What makes somebody commit treason against their country? It's essentially what he's doing. Uh, what, are, what are Tolkachev's motivations for spying? Tolkachev was a very quiet fellow. You know, he didn't ever tell his family um, what he was feeling. Even uh, members of his family remember he was sort of a stone-faced guy. His emotions were inside. He was very reserved. So it's not as if we have a lot to go on. But from the letters that he wrote the CIA, I can tell you that deep inside, he felt that both the past and the present of the Soviet Union um, haunted him. The past because his wife, Natasha, was orphaned when she was two years old. She lost her mother, who was caught up in Stalin's purges, was arrested one night by the secret police, and hauled away and shot. And her father, a week later, he was a party newspaper editor, um, hiding out at a friend's house. He was arrested and taken off to the gulag. She was two years old. She was orphaned until she was 18. Finally, her father came back from the gulag and told her what had happened, and then he died of a brain tumor. So she felt robbed of her childhood, and she was very, very angry and bitter, even though she worked inside this system, and she met Tolkachev working at a top-secret military institute where they both worked. He absorbed some of her pain. He felt some of what haunted her. But he also, at the time they were married in 1957, shared some enthusiasm with the idea of the thaw. After Stalin, a uh, young generation in the Soviet Union felt that the war and Stalin's repressions were behind them. You know, Sputnik was in October 1957. Things were looking up. Maybe better times were coming. And the thaw didn't last. The thaw petered out by the late 1960s. 
And the real crushing end of the thaw was 1968, when the Soviet Union invaded Czechoslovakia and crushed the Prague Spring. And just a small little vignette, on the, when that episode happened, when the Prague Spring was crushed, there was a little vote in Natasha's workplace. All the workers were expected to vote yes in favor of the Soviet invasion. It was a little bit of a propaganda exercise. One hand went up for no, and that was Natasha. She was as anti-Soviet as anybody in that room, but still, she worked in the institute, she kept her job. Uh, she and Tolkachev had a single child, a son, born in 1965. By the early 1970s, Tolkachev was just in a rage. He just felt, as he wrote to the CIA, something was eating away at him. The thaw had failed. The system was failing. There were uh, lines for groceries, lines for food and clothing. It was the years of stagnation. Nothing was going right, and he had to do something. And he told his CIA case officer once, I'm a dissident at heart. And he was. What really motivated him was this feeling that he would have liked to have been a dissident. But he worked in a top secret military institute. He had a pass that said, you know, he had clearance to all these secrets. And he said, you know, I thought maybe I could change things if I wrote up some pamphlets like a dissident and distributed them on the street. But I realized very quickly that I'd get arrested. That wouldn't be very good. So part of his challenge was to how to channel this anger at the system, at the past, and at the present. I mean, you write in your book that he essentially secretly idolizes Solzhenitsyn and Sakharov and these people who had the, the courage to come out as dissidents. And this happened, Solzhenitsyn and Sakharov met in 1974. So in the period of the early 70s when his young son is growing up, Tolkachev is pondering what to do. He's inspired by the fact that Sakharov also works in a top secret military institute, but was speaking his mind about the failures of the Soviet system. And Solzhenitsyn's writings, uh, they, Solzhenitsyn came under gradual pressure for his writings. You know, his initial book was published in the Soviet Union in the 60s, but later, by the 70s, he was becoming quite a dissident writer. And again, it was Natasha who brought home the Gulag Archipelago in Samizdat, which was that sort of carbon-papered, hand-to-hand prohibited manuscript. So, manuscript. so again, you know, you see this dynamic between them. And this feeling that in public they had to put on their public face and they worked in their secret work every day, but at home they were angry. And Tolkachev just didn't know right away how to channel this anger. And you talk a lot about his wife. I mean, the question that comes up whenever you have a, a, one spy in a relationship is how much did everybody else know when it came? Because from all express purposes, she had no real idea until a particular point. At the beginning of this story, of this spy and espionage part of this story, she doesn't know, okay? So when Tolkachev finally heard on his radio, uh, he's tuning the shortwave one day, and he heard on the Voice of America that an elite Soviet fighter pilot had defected to Japan in a MiG-25, a very, very fast airplane that uh, many people in the West feared for because it was considered the fastest fighter plane, and suddenly one of them lands at a civilian airport in Japan. It was a big intelligence windfall, and the pilot got out of the plane and said, I want asylum in the United States. And Tolkachev heard this on his radio, and he thought, you know, maybe now I've found the answer to how to, to express my rage. He had worked on and built the radar in that MiG-25. That's what his secret institute did, and he thought, you know, what I can do the weapon I have is in my desk drawer at work. It's the top secret papers I see every day. And at the early stages when he begins to do this, his wife didn't know. She found out later. One, I think one of the more uh, humorous probably, might be the wrong word, but I, I thought it was funny, was how much trouble he had volunteering to spy for the CIA. You've talked, and we'll talk later about how important he was as a spy, but the book title alludes to that. At first, the CIA wanted nothing to do with them, and I think that, can you talk a little bit about that process? So, Tolkachev heard in September of 1976 about this pilot who had defected to Japan when he landed, well, that was September, and he thought for a few weeks what to do, and he had a very, very crude command of English, very little, but he had enough, he wrote out a note in English, and he 
memorized a couple of sentences in English to introduce himself. He lived right near the American Embassy in Moscow. In fact, he liked to jog in the mornings around the American Embassy compound, where he saw all the guard shacks, where he saw all the diplomats' cars parked, and where he knew where they filled up their cars at the gas station. So in January of 1977, just eight days before Jimmy Carter's inauguration, Tolkachev went to the gas station where he knew the Americans would be going to fill up their cars. It was 6 p.m., already dark in Moscow, a very cold evening, and he saw one of these cars, and he saw the driver finish filling up and just start to climb back into the car. And he went up to the driver and said, can I talk to you? And the driver said, well, not right now. What is it? What? And Tolkachev had just remembered these few sentences. The driver said, it would be a little difficult. And Tokachev said in English, oh, it would be difficult. And realizing that this driver was not going to talk to him, Tokachev said, excuse me, in Russian, reached into the car and put a heavily taped envelope on the seat, and then he disappeared. Well, the driver he had approached at the gas station happened to be the chief of station of the CIA in Moscow. <laughs> so when the chief of station got back to the station, he unwrapped this package, which had all this tape and glue and everything, and he found Tolkachev's little note. It didn't say who he was or how to reach him or anything. But uh, the cable that the chief of station sent back to headquarters is reproduced in the book. You can see it. And, you know, it was an interesting offer. A guy shows up, he says, I'm an engineer, I'd like to talk to you, but headquarters didn't want anything to do with it. Headquarters was afraid of KGB dangles, and the KGB did run dangles. They were afraid it was an ambush, and they said, don't talk to the guy. Well, Tolkachev wouldn't give up. Remember that he had been thinking about this for quite some time, and frankly, he'd been thinking about it for years. So four more times in the next few months, he tries to get the chief of station's attention, coming up to the car with envelopes, sticking letters through the crack in the window, and the fourth time in May, actually banging on the hood of the car to get the guy's attention. But the chief of station, his name was Bob Fulton, and Bob uh, has passed away, but he told me before he died, he actually thought that the volunteer was genuine. He wanted to talk to him, but he also followed the instructions from headquarters, don't do it. So as a result, Tolkachev spent most of 1977 trying to get the attention of the CIA, and he finally gets it in 1978 by revealing who he is and where he works, and the operation itself begins on New Year's Day, 1979. So that was almost two years after he volunteered. And what makes him so interesting is that he was someone that was willing to be operated inside Moscow, and that was really the key during the Cold War is all the spies you've heard of are people that we ran outside of Moscow. We never were able to run a, a, an agent inside the, you know, the, the, the den of the KGB. And this is what makes them truly unique. And I, that's what the trepidation of the CIA was, how good the KGB was at the time at preventing this from happening. Uh, it was considered very, very dangerous to recruit and talk to a spy on the streets of Moscow. There are a few that had come back from abroad who had been recruited abroad and continued to work in Moscow. But to actually approach somebody and talk to them could get them in a lot of trouble. In this case, the real issue became... What kind of tradecraft was necessary to run an operation right on the streets of Moscow? And, you know, the amazing thing to me, as I went walking through some of these parks and tried to recreate some of these meetings, is that almost all of them were within sight of Tolkachev's 18-story apartment building. You know, I mean, this was not something where they went way out to the forest or to some industrial park. It was right smack in the middle of the city. In the end, Tolkachev met with the CIA 21 times on the streets of Moscow, a city crawling, swarming with KGB people. Those meetings were all held within three miles of the front door of the KGB, and they were not detected. So that, to me, suggests that the CIA was wrong. They could run an agent on the streets of Moscow, and they did. Well, a, a lot of what comes into play there is that some of the new tradecraft that was developed for this exact purpose, some of the new technological innovation that was created in the late 70s, early 80s, and a new station chief in Moscow who really uh, had the capability, perhaps, or the temperament to run more risk than, than his predecessors may have. And this was, the new station chief was Gus Hathaway. Gus came after Mr. Fulton in 1977, 
and he fought headquarters to run uh, an agent on the streets of Moscow. And Gus was also a big proponent of technology. He thought, you know, the KGB may have more guys on the street in Moscow than we do, but we have better electronics, and we have better technology, and we can beat them with our technology. One piece of technology that really worked was the SRR-100, which was a tiny little radio that would be put, implanted in your ear with a special cover of silicone that was exactly the same color as your skin. And this little receiver, which had several other parts, uh, you could monitor the KGB's own radio transmissions as you moved around. So if they were looking at you and said, the guy in the blue tie, you know, you knew it was you, but if they were, you could have a better sense of everything around you. That worked pretty well. With Tolkachev, there was a real question, how do we communicate with him? At first, the CIA thought, let's use the impersonal method, methods that we've long used, which like dead drops. We'll leave something in a fake brick and he'll pick up the brick. But Tolkachev said after the first dead drop, guys, I don't want to do this. All right? If I'm going to risk my life, if I'm going to do, you know, take all these dangerous things that you want me to do, then I want to look you in the eye. I want to shake your hand and see you. And so they stopped using dead drops. And instead, they began to communicate with him in meetings. But still, Gus Hathaway thought, maybe we can use some kind of electronic gizmos to beat the KGB. And one of these was a handheld electronic communicator. Back then, it was revolutionary. There was absolutely nothing like this in the early, 19, in the early 1980s, late 1970s. It, today, you would say, oh, that looks like my iPhone. But can you imagine 20 years before the iPhone? The CIA invented it. It wasn't quite as easy to use. You had to peck little characters with a stylus. Um, it was a little clunky, but still, it would allow Tolkachev and his case officer to send messages if they were 100 yards away from each other. Therefore, the KGB wouldn't notice they were standing next to each other. And Gus Hathaway thought this device was the cat's meow. I mean, he thought, we've just got to give it to Tolkachev, and he'll be safe, and we can zoom over the heads of all those guys on the street. There was just one problem. As a spy, Tolkachev didn't want to send little messages pecked in with a stylus on a little communicator. He was bringing out whole file cabinets full of top-secret documents, blueprints, things that were much more valuable than little tiny messages. And so in the end, this handheld communicating device, which cost millions of dollars to build and was years ahead of technology, wasn't appropriate particularly for this particular spy. And there was another problem that came up. And that was a question of what kind of body language would you need? What kind of choreography for street work would you need if you were going to communicate with a spy using an advanced electronic communicator. And the station chief after Hathaway, Burton Gerber, was very worried that having this little kind of iPhone thing would create a certain body language a KGB could spot. And Mr. Gerber took his wife to the vegetable market to test the device. His wife, Rosalie, stood by the tomatoes, and Burton stood by the cucumbers. They each had one. And they thought, let's try and send the message. And Mr. Gerber realized that to send the message, you had to know that the little red light on the device was blinking. So he, he asked the logical question. He says, what kind of body language for a spy is it to be standing in the street or in a vegetable market looking into your pocket to see if you had a red light? He said, it's a dead giveaway. So in the end, the discus was given to Tolkachev. Um, everybody was excited about the idea of American technology. It was clearly superior. Um, there was a lot of good theory behind this. Tolkachev used it once in six years to send a message to the Moscow station saying, can we meet tomorrow? There's, there's a line in, in your book that I thought was especially appropriate, particularly for people that don't really uh, know a lot about tradecraft. And I do have to give you credit. Like This is... One of the better, or maybe even in the top couple, layperson attempts to explain CIA tradecraft, like not former practitioners. And there's a line that I think really does a great job in kind of summing up how much attention to detail is necessary for putting on one of these operations. You talk about it as like a moonshot, like, you know, like putting men on the moon. That's how much attention to detail and concentration is necessary for this. And your explanation of talking about things like getting black. Uh, you know, f getting rid of KGB surveillance and everything like 
very basic technologies like the jack-in-the-box and some of the new and innovative waves. Uh, I, I think for those of you out there, uh, both professionals and lay people alike, will get a lot uh, out of, of learning about this time when this is uncharted waters in many cases. Again, you know, running an agent this important inside of Moscow was a new deal for just about everybody at CIA. So should I explain what the Jack in the Box was? Yeah, absolutely. The Jack in the Box was not a fast food restaurant. <laughs> okay? But it, there was a real problem. The KGB always followed CIA case officers or people they suspected were intelligence officers around Moscow. They followed them from a couple car lengths behind or even further. So a challenge if you're going out on a, to meet Tolkachev or an agent, any agent, was how do you evade them? How do you lose them so that you can be black? In other words, you can function without them surveilling you. And this was always very difficult, but uh, it was a conclusion after some experience of, of Gus Hath Hathaway that the KGB cars rarely pulled up alongside somebody that they were surveilling. They usually followed from behind. Maybe they were a little bit afraid to get too close, but from behind they were maybe uh, only seeing a couple of sort of shadowy silhouettes in the CIA car. So the CIA came up with the idea of creating a dummy, the, a pop-up dummy, so if a car went zooming fast around the curve, the real case officer could jump out and disappear, and the pop-up would come up, and the surveillance cars would follow the pop-up in the car, and the real case officer could depart. Now, this was a tricky business. I won't give it all away, but eventually the CIA figured out that all you needed to fool the KGB was not a lifelike dummy, just a silhouette. In other words, a two-dimensional cardboard would be just fine. And so they invented one that would just pop up out of a briefcase or, in the case of this particular operation, out of a fake birthday cake. And this uh, worked really well because the car would just whip around the corner. The real case officer would jump out in disguise and usually uh, slip away after five or six steps. Then by the time the KGB caught up, with the car, the pop-up went up, and it was a very sophisticated little pop-up. The driver could use his right hand, left hand on the wheel, and he would move a lever back and forth, and the pop-up had a head that would go like this. <laughs> and so that way the KGB would think that the guy was talking, and they would go chasing after this piece of cardboard. Well, one, one of the things I think is really interesting in your book is that you, you do a really good job, I believe, in uh, discussing the give and take between Moscow, uh, the CIA station in Moscow, and headquarters back here in Langley, uh, and the idea of uh, they weren't always on the same page about how far and how fast they should push this operation. Can you talk a little bit about that dynamic? The tension between headquarters and stations is uh, it's a part of what the CIA is, and it's uh, not new to this particular case or this time. But this was a particularly unique moment because of a few things that had gone wrong in Moscow, um, an agent that had been rolled up in ambush, uh, fire in the Moscow embassy. The director of the CIA at the time, Admiral Stansfield Turner, decided something was wrong, and he ordered the Moscow station into a complete stand-down. In other words, no running of agents, no dead drops, no nothing. And the case officers had to sit around making up maps, hoping someday they'd get back in business. It was, a, it was kind of a dreadful time, actually. People were very upset at Turner. It was pretty much unprecedented. And Gus Hathaway, who was the chief of station, fought this vigorously, fought and fought and fought. And one of the things that he did is he brought one of Turner's top assistants to Moscow, and he gave him that little radio, and he said, we're going out, and I'm going to show you on the street how we can work against these guys. And even the assistant was amazed to see how sloppy the KGB was. You know, They would announce when they were surveilling somebody, they're stopping at the red light. They're turning left. They're turning right. And so the CIA guys could hear everything the KGB was saying about them. The assistant went back and said, Director Turner, everything's okay. We've got to resume operations in Moscow. Turner refused. And this was right at the time that Tolkachev was volunteering. One of the great spies of the Cold War is knocking at their door, and the director at headquarters is saying, stand down. Finally, Turner relented, and the operation began. And then begins, of course, a whole new set of discussions which go out not just by casual phone chats, but in written cables back and forth about how to manage the spy, um, how much to pay the spy, where to meet him, under what conditions and what time, what kind of equipment. What, 
And even sometimes headquarters would send questions. One time, headquarters said, we have 45 questions we want them to answer. And they sent this list. And the case officer kind of sheepishly gave it to Tolkachev and said, you know, my bosses would like you to. And some of these were like wild questions. You know, what does Andropov eat for breakfast? And, and Tolkachev gave it back at the next meeting. He said, look, I'm really sorry. I'm an engineer. I'm a radar expert in a top secret institute. But I don't know the answers to, only, to most of your questions. I could answer 11 out of 45. But the CIA was, at this point, completely insatiable. They kept sending lists of things they wanted. Could Tolkachev get them a phone book for so-and-so institute? Could he steal a piece of metal for the airplane? Could he get this? Could he get that? I mean, once this operation got going, then headquarters was just absolutely insatiable. Well, I mean, he was a victim of his own success in many cases. His information was so good that you know the Air Force and the CIA and the military just like get us more, get us more, get us more. Um, but I think to me the interesting part is, but the, the the CIA station in Moscow essentially becomes his advocate, and you know there is that dynamic of trying to protect the asset while at the same time getting the information. The whole point that they're there in the first place. And there was one moment when Tolkachev showed up to meet his case officer, and he said, "Here, I have something really special for you." And he gave the case officer two or three circuit boards from one of the radars. So you can imagine how the guys back in Washington just went crazy. You know, to actually see the, uh, the electronics that the Soviets were using, it showed, of course, that their electronics were rather primitive. But that was very important intelligence information for the United States. So of course, then the next question to come from Washington to the case officer was, well, can you get them to get some more? And at this point, the Moscow station said, look, don't overdo it, guys. You know, we can't press this guy to steal everything in sight. Even though Tolkachev himself wanted to, and he was actually a very willing agent, and he created for himself a plan which he, in which he said he would steal the following things, and he gave the CIA a list in uh, seven stages over 12 years. And he did the whole thing in two or three years. In fact, three or four years into this operation, Tolkachev was running out of things to steal. He had, he had been through all the classified libraries. You know, he was actually beginning to reach the end of his plan much earlier. Of course, at this time, he had created so much demand in the U.S. government that the, there was no stopping. Well, that's one of the other interesting dynamics is that the, the CIA station in Moscow wasn't just pushing back headquarters. They were pushing Tolkachev back. They were trying to slow him down. They were very, very worried that he was so determined to be a productive agent, that he would make a mistake. And Tolkachev uh, was the one who proposed and carried out a plan in which he would take secret documents from his institute, put them into his overcoat, walk home at the lunch hour, 20-minute walk, photograph the documents in his apartment, which was empty. His wife was at work and his son was at school put the documents back in his overcoat, and go back to work, and put them back in the file. He did this for a couple of years. And the issue came up, how to take the pictures? Because there's no photocopier here. They're all under lock and key in the Soviet Union. So they had to give him a camera. There were a number of different cameras described and used in this operation, but the one that turned out to be the killer, the camera that Tolkachev used to really damage the Soviet Union, was a commercially available Pentax ME 35-millimeter film camera. And Tolkachev was so busy with this thing, day after day, winding the lever, taking pictures in his apartment, that he burned out a couple camera bodies. <laughs> and case officers were bringing him new ones because he was using it so much. And his eyes lit up one day when a case officer brought him 44 of those little tiny batteries, <laughs> you know, because he, he loved this method. The camera had a clamp that held it still on the back of a chair. That simple. That was the technology that worked. Right. I mean, when you go through the spy museum or see spy movies, all these little Minox cameras and special gadgets, and I think it turns out to be a camera you could buy at any store around town. Well, and this museum has one of the few examples of another camera the CIA developed, again, costing millions of dollars, that was also used in this operation. It's called the Tropel. And the little tiny Tropel is small enough it could fit in a lipstick or a fountain pen. Um, it is so difficult to make, it has to be done by hand with watchmaking precision. And the CIA initially gave the tropel to Tolkachev early in the operation, but it was very, very hard to get enough light in that apartment to make it work. The pictures were blurry, you know, like our pictures that don't come out. 
His pictures weren't coming out, which is why he got the Pentax. Later, a couple years later, they had improved that little tropel greatly. The film was more sensitive, it was a little bit better, and they gave it to him again. And this time, things were getting really tense. He was getting to the end of the operation. He didn't know it, but the, he couldn't take documents home anymore. Things had changed, security was tighter, so he had a good idea. Tolkachev took the documents to the men's room. He went into a stall, locked the stall. He noticed there was a small window painted white, but sort of opaque with enough light above the stall. He put the documents on the toilet, and he took that little tropel and held it above, and he made copies right smack in the middle of that top secret institute, and then smuggled the little tropel out and gave it to the CIA. So if there is an antagonist in this book, if there is a villain, it's not anybody inside the Soviet Union. I mean, they're, they come across as just doing their jobs. It's an American. It's a, 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 uh, someone that a lot of people don't know a whole lot about, you know, overshadowed by the Ames and the Hansons of the world, but potentially just as damaging, and that, of course, is Edward Lee Howard. Uh, can you talk a little bit about him uh, and, and why he ends up being... Uh, you Wikipedia Tolkachev, you know, ends up being the death of Tolkachev in the end. You know, the, this um, system that Tolkachev and his case officers had meeting on the streets of Moscow was difficult, but they made it work. There was never once when one of those KGB uh, surveillance crews spotted them. So a big question when Tolkachev was finally arrested in 1985 is what had gone wrong? Was there a leak in communications in the station? How, you know, and there was a frantic and difficult period there of searching for what had gone wrong. And it wasn't really known right away. But soon, uh, the CIA heard from a KGB defector that there was a source that told the KGB, and they had figured it out. And that source was Edward Lee Howard. He had been a CIA trainee. He was destined for Moscow. He had been assigned to Moscow Station. He had been trained for it. He had been trained on the jack-in-the-box. He even had a, com a commission, which is like a diploma, signed by President Reagan and Secretary of State Schultz for his cover to be a, a State Department employee. He was all set to be Tolkachev's handler. On the eve of his departure to Moscow, he flunked the routine lie detector test. He took it again and flunked it a second time. He took it four times and flunked all four, and the CIA decided we cannot send a guy to handle our most valuable agent who has just flunked a lie detector test four times. Edward Lee Howard was fired from the CIA rather summarily, and although he relocated to Santa Fe, New Mexico, and the CIA thought maybe he would find a way to sort of restart his life, um, he didn't. He was full of anger and vengeance and decided to get back at the CIA. And he betrayed Tolkachev as vengeance. I would add that uh, there was one other sort of evil angle to this particular story. And that is the question of why did Tolkachev do it? What was he angry about the Soviet system? I mean, when you think about it, a lot of the methods that are used here, the KGB used too. A lot of the tradecraft uh, worked on both sides in this long sort of twilight war. But the Soviet system really was for millions of people, a prison. And I think Tolkachev had a conscience, and I think that he could see around him whatever hopes even he had had as someone who'd grown up entirely in that system, that it had gone off the rails, that it was really a bad place that was getting worse. And I found it very interesting that after Tolkachev was caught, his wife, Natasha, was also accused of collaborating. She served two years in prison as a result of this, and her life was pretty much ruined as well. She became very ill, and she wrote the American Embassy a letter saying, my husband Tolkachev served you, I'm dying of cancer. And she said in there, he did it for freedom. And I think that that short statement says so much about Tolkachev's understanding of what the Cold War was about and what was happening inside the Soviet Union and even inside his cosseted little secret world. And Tolkachev told the CIA, I'm not spying for America because I love your country. He says, I don't have enough romanticism to love the United States. He did it because he hated what was happening in the Soviet Union. And he was bound and determined to do as much damage to the Soviet Union as he could in the shortest possible time. 
Those are his words. Well, let's talk about that damage. I think the final topic before we open it up to the audience is the impact of his spying. And your book title alludes to this, certainly. Uh, but what, what can we pinpoint based on your research? I know you've, you've even said in the very beginning that you don't have any smoking gun. But from what you've found from the people that you've talked to, what is the true impact of the information that he provides to the United States? When you think about the Cold War, the United States was geographically very lucky. We had oceans on both sides of us. We were removed from our adversaries somewhat. Think about the Soviet Union. NATO and Europe was right on its border. The Soviet Union, the largest country by landmass, had the largest borders to defend. So a big part of what the Soviet leadership had invested in was protecting those borders from an attack from the West. Protecting meant air defenses, radars. It meant you had to have airplanes to, to defend your airspace, and you had to have radars on the ground to watch out for enemies. One of the big questions that we had about this massive air defense system was, how effective was it? How well did it work? Where was it vulnerable? Where could we literally sneak under it? And this was a huge, huge question for the American military in the 1970s because we decided guessing a little bit, but I think based on evidence, that Soviet radars could not see flying objects at low altitude. If you were flying at 500 feet, they couldn't spot you. They could only see up high. So all of our research and development efforts were aimed at flying under the radars. We invented and built something called the Strategic Cruise Missile, which was a brilliant missile that could, at the time it was... Uh, practically unheard of, follow the terrain, go up and down hills and valleys, and hug the ground, it would go right under that radar. And what Tolkachev did, one thing he did is he showed us that our assumptions were correct. And of course, following right behind the cruise missile was the stealth bomber in development at the time. Well, why build a radar-evading bomber if you don't know if it'll work? And again, we had a man who understood what was going on, and Tolkachev said, here's the reality of Soviet radar. We could then build our weapons with the assurance that they would work. That was worth a lot. Even before the operation was finished, the CIA asked the Air Force, well, we're getting all the stuff for you. What's it worth? And the, uh, an assistant at the Air Force who was in charge of intelligence wrote a note back to the CIA. And he said, already, he saved us $2 billion in research and development. And that was a couple of years before the operation was even finished. So that's where the title comes from. He really was the billion-dollar spy. But we didn't pay him a billion dollars. What did Tolkachev want? Well, he wanted some cash. We paid him cash. There was nothing to buy in Moscow. There were shortages. Gus Hathaway, the station chief, said one day, he said, what's he going to do with all that money? Put it in a shoebox in his attic and wiggle his toes in it? There was nothing to buy. Um, he wanted rock music records for his son. His son then began to study architecture. Tolkachev wanted proper drawing pens and pencils. He wanted an eraser that worked, which is not something you could get at that time in the Soviet Union. That was the Soviet Union that he was trying to destroy. Well, you also talk about the, the, the tactical side of his intelligence as well, the idea that this is a time period in the 1980s when the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Air Force is revising their schools, like, like Top Gun and other things. Uh, and the information that he's bringing in based about Soviet aircraft was transformative. And you, you give these, these stats, and, and I can read them off, is, and to me they're incredibly telling. Uh, the ratios of American pilots against Soviet-built aircraft. In Korea, we shot down six Soviet-built aircraft for every one of ours that was shot down. In Vietnam, that dropped to two to one. And you know this if you've seen Top Gun. But in Iraq and against the, the, the Serbian forces in the Balkans, which is after Tokachev's information, the ratio is 48 to nothing. The United States has enjoyed absolute air superiority against Soviet-built aircraft for two decades, thanks to this one man. Uh, a lot of times, I think, intelligence is... Uh, sometimes we summarize it. We think of the President's Daily Brief we think of national intelligence reports. We think of the things, the tangible products of intelligence that we know about. 
But one of my discoveries in this case is that not all of what Tolkachev brought home uh, in those Pentax film canisters that he turned over to his case officers, not all of it went to the president. A lot of it went right into the black R&D programs of the United States government so that we could develop countermeasures to Soviet radar. Tolkachev brought us the details of the Soviet airborne warning and control planes, the AWACS planes. And that allowed us to plug into those planes and know everything that the Soviet uh, commanders were telling their fighters in real time while we're in the air. That was just absolutely unparalleled intelligence. I don't think anybody ever bothered to tell the President of the United States about that. But boy, the people that built countermeasures in radar, they really went to town on that. Well, and American pilots certainly have appreciated that for the last two decades. So now let's open it up to you. Uh, if you have a question, please wait. Uh, Laura's going to come around with a microphone so we can pick it up. Let's start here. Uh. Uh, yes, uh, very interesting. Um, my question um, is, what is the thinking, what was the thinking um, of having such a junior person run such a valuable agent? Um, I know um, perhaps some people think, um, well, he would be unknown to the Soviets, but... Um, I don't know how many people also thought of the Penkovsky case, but that was another example of someone being run perhaps too long. And I don't know if they had a sense of of when to end the operation, but I don't know if you could address some of these issues. Well, a couple of things in your question. The first thing is, what about case officers? The first case officer for Tolkachev was John Gilsher, um, a very experienced uh, veteran of the CIA with terrific Russian language skills. He'd been a Russian language officer for many years. This was his first street operation, and it turned out he did brilliantly. And he ran Tolkachev for a little bit less than two years, for a year and a half. Um, but then the next case officer, David Rolfe, who took over, was on his first tour. And he never served in Moscow before. In fact, it was his first assignment. To the, uh, Moscow Station was his first assignment. And oftentimes, the CIA felt that if they sent somebody young, uh, the KGB would have never seen them anywhere else in the world. So therefore, maybe they wouldn't suspect that they were CIA. Now, on the question of how long an operation goes, uh, that's a different issue, I think. And the documents show the CIA oftentimes was uh, asking itself, how long can this go on? Should we exfiltrate Tolkachev and bring him out? Should, you know, do we, should we expect that this gold mine is going to eventually dry up? And Tolkachev also dilly-dallied over this question. You know, at one point he said, I, I'd like you to prepare an exfiltration plan. And then another time they gave him a plan. He said, no, no, I can never leave. And his wife, uh, for a couple of years, didn't know. When she found out, she asked him to stop spying. Tolkachev said he would, but he didn't. So even after his wife had discovered it and he promised to quit, he kept spying. So at that point, he was not in a very good position to ask his wife to leave um, and be exfiltrated. And then his son was growing up, and that weighed on him also. So I think, actually, this uh, operation went through a period of sort of uh, inertia in the sense that the CIA was getting a lot. Um, Tolkachev couldn't move, and nobody really knew what was going to happen. Right here in front, Laura. Thank you. Uh, sort of perhaps following up a bit on, on that last point, at what point did the KGB begin to realize or at least suspect that they had a mole uh, in their midst who was giving information, even if, you know, they didn't know specifically how much or what information? And at what point did they begin to focus on, if they ever did, on this particular you know, um, a spy, this particular mole, if you will, before they got the information from the, uh, from the ex-CIA um, uh, person that, you know, uh, ended the whole, ended the whole um, operation. They didn't know about Tokachev until Howard told them. So they, they didn't know at all until Howard told them. And I think Howard told them probably in October of 1984, I, you know, he made a, a trip to Geneva, probably, which is where maybe a little sooner, and they arrested Tolkachev in 1985, probably in May. So uh, they spent a couple months hunting. 
Um, they've never said exactly, but I think that uh, it was quite clear that Howard uh, betrayed Tolkachev. Howard had been trained to run this operation. How much he told them, the name of the person or the code name, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we may never know, but it took him a few months. And what about before that? I mean, did they know that they were... No. Not no. No. I, I think that from the time the operation began on New Year's Day, 1979, until Howard showed up in late 1984, they didn't know. It's not like they were fighting a war and all of a sudden all their planes were getting shot down at once and there was obviously a leak. This is information that would be very difficult to know was being taken from them. And, and the value of the information often was that it was their research and development plans for things 10 years in the future. Their future was being robbed, not only their present. Uh, Mr. Stout, Dr. Stout in the back. And also that other fellow who had yeah. his hand up back there. Thanks very much. I, uh, you've ruined my next few evenings because I'm going to have to just read straight through this book. But um, a question for you. Uh, so the former CIA historian Ben Fisher wrote after he retired um, an article, I assume based on Barry Royden's piece, um, arguing that there were certain anomalies with the Tolkachev case. And he concludes that Tolkachev was probably, in fact, uh, a double agent. And I remember one of the anomalies, for instance, was uh, you know about him taking documents home and then photographing them and bringing them back. And he argued he couldn't have walked all that distance and uh, you know in that time. I'm curious if you've had a look at Ben Fisher's argument. I'm assuming you don't agree with it. If you have any sort of thoughts on that argument or, or, or that claim? Yeah, I've seen the paper and I think it's wrong. Um, I have seen the raw original documents. Uh, I don't know if he did, and I have walked that walk myself, which he didn't. He tried to use a map and Google Earth and said, oh, he couldn't have. But I have actually been to that institute, and I walked from there to Tolkachev's front door. So I, I think that the Ben Fisher thing is just wrong. Uh, right there, you had a question? This fellow? Yeah. Yeah. It was about, it, I think you may have largely answered it, but it was about uh, the failure to exfiltrate him. Be Surely he must have known that his life was in danger and the the period between you're under, you're, you become under suspicion and are arrested and shot in the back of the head can be fairly limited. Right. You know, Tolkachev uh, entertained this notion, but he was very ambivalent about it for reasons I mentioned, because he didn't think he could get his family out. But he was a very kind of uh, curious fellow. Even when they gave him that discus and it didn't work, he was an engineer. He liked to play with radios, you know. He was, and so he came up one time to his case officer and he said, you know, I've been thinking about exfiltration. How do we get out of here? I propose that we'll go to our dacha and you guys land a glider in the field and pick us up and fly out of the Soviet Union. I mean, it was total fantasy. But he thought like that sometimes. And I think at the time that the station chief came up with this plan and handed it to him, headquarters was against it. Headquarters says, now, we don't want to get him out now. We're getting too much good stuff. And at the time that Tolkachev really wanted to, a little bit earlier, you know, he, so nobody's desires ever synced up on this question. And I think looking at the whole thing, Tolkachev never really crossed over into that period where he would tell his family enough that they would actually be smuggled out in the you know, trunk of a car, which had happened with uh, another in another operation. And there's an enormous amount of back and forth on this. For a while, headquarters offered him the possibility as a sweetener when they didn't really mean it. And they thought maybe it'll make, you know, make him a little bit more cooperative if he thinks he's going to get a trip to America. And they weren't really all that sincere about it. So that's what happens, back and forth, back and forth. He was certainly cognizant of the, the threat to him, the danger that he was in, the constant back and forth about the L pill. So the L pill, the L stands for lethal. And Tolkachev wanted a suicide pill. He wanted a cyanide capsule. He said, I do not want to die at the hands of the KGB. If they grab me, I want this thing in my pocket. And uh, it took a long time for the CIA to agree. Eventually they did, and they gave it to him. Um, and the sad thing is that when he was caught, he didn't have it with him. Any last questions? Yes, up here in front, Laura. Okay, and then one back here. Yep, and I, there's actually one back there, too. Oh, oh. Thanks. What did we ultimately do for his wife and child? Well, Tolkachev's pay sat in an escrow account. Um, we did nothing for his wife. Uh, we've offered his son money, but he hasn't taken it. So, actually, we, we did nothing. But we did offer. We did offer. And... 
Uh, I think that how do you compensate a guy who's working in such a desolate place like uh, Moscow and doesn't want to leave, right? You can't really give – at one point, they decided to give him some valuable jewelry. They were, they were always thinking about, you know, what good is to give the guy 400,000 rubles in nice, clean bills that we've gotten from some Geneva, you know, currency broker when well, he can't go to any market and spend it. So it was always a very, very difficult thing. And this is why his son's desires for the rock music and for the architectural drawing equipment, it becomes so important to Tolkachev. And the case officers noticed that when Tolkachev would make these requests, you know, his eyes would just light up. Um, could they bring him stereo headphones for his son? Oh, could they bring him a stereo catalog, one of those glossy catalogs for different stereo systems just to look at? That would be huge. You know, could they bring him detective novels in English because his son went to a school where they studied English? So the things that he wanted were actually very mundane. One day he said, look, can you just bring me a decent razor? I mean, here's the guy who's saving us billions of dollars. He wanted a razor. And he got it. Back to I have a question about the tradecraft. Um, I read your article in the Post about the, the pop-up. That seems fairly simplistic, but obviously did the trick. Um, I'm just wondering, what's kind of the shelf life for some of the, the tradecraft? I, I assume they caught on eventually. Obviously, some tradecraft is very sophisticated. But how long before it kind of doesn't work anymore? I think this is a really important question because... The CIA technology people who were always trying to push the limits of technology always said it's important to shove this stuff out into the field even when it's in beta, even when it's, we're still testing it because the best technology is the technology your adversary doesn't know about. So when uh, the KGB began catching up with something, it became obsolete. And sometimes they caught up because they had an ambush and they rolled up somebody. Um, in the case of Tolkachev, certainly it was the first time they ever saw the Tropel camera, which they found in his apartment. Um, I, I imagine that caused them a, a start. And, you know, did that make the Tropel camera obsolete? Could it continue to be used? Yeah, it was small enough. It probably had a shelf life of longer. But when Marty Peterson, another uh, case officer, was ambushed, she had that SRR 100 radio in her ear. And the, the radio had four parts. It had a necklace that was a wireless uh, device to the earpiece. It had a little part that she had strapped actually to her bra. And the KGB guys who grabbed her found all the obvious parts, right? They found the necklace. They found the thing onto her bra. They never found the thing in her ear. She was sitting there in the Lubyanka being interrogated with that top secret little radio, and they never found it. So I think uh, uh, your question is, can't easily be answered. It depends on case by case. The discus was years ahead of its time. And I don't know if, the, if KGB ever got their hands on it because Tolkachev had a horrible scare in 1983, a couple of years into the operation where he thought he was about to be caught. And he took everything the CIA had given him, the rubles by the stack, um, all the stuff, the plans, the meeting schedules, the discus, everything out to his dacha where he had a big old iron oven, and he burned it. And when the fires went out, he saw all the rubles had been burned and everything, but the discus didn't burn. It was too tough. And so he gathered up all these sort of charred uh, electronic parts that were part of the $20 million you know, CIA super communicator. And as he was driving back to Moscow in his little car, he threw them out the window into the ditch. Um, anyway, I, that thing, that discus was way ahead of its time. It would have been a real setback if, they, if the KGB had gotten a hold of one. It's really entirely arbitrary when things were compromised. Right, uh, back there, we'll, we'll come to the fore. So let's go with him, and then we'll move up to John, and then we'll come forward. If you could have interviewed Tokachov, what question would you have wanted to ask him? I would have wanted to look him in the eye and say, why did you do it? Because I, we have his letters to the CIA, but when a man risks his life, and when a man feels so strongly about a system, um, I would have loved to listen for a couple hours to the why. The genre. It's a great talk. Um, I was amazed at the access that the CIA gave you in terms of the Tolkachev file. 
we, we can all understand. I think it's it's an older case. There probably aren't any secrets in there that will compromise anything. But I'm even more amazed when you say that uh, you found former CIA officers willing to talk. And I'd like to ask you how, how difficult that was. I know that when a CIA person writes a book about the CIA, it's going to go through our publication review board. It's like a little insurance policy. So if we speak to a former officer, they know it's going to be vetted. But with you, they wouldn't know that. They would just be talking to you, um, a civilian author, about maybe formerly classified material. Was there any problem there, or were they, were they forthcoming? I, I think the premise of your question isn't quite right. I did cooperate with the CIA um, a fair amount, but I did not work inside the system. I worked outside. And I told the CIA, look, I'm not here to hurt the national security. I'm here to tell a story. So I asked them to declassify the documents, and when they gave them to me, they had had their shot. They could take out things that they thought. Um, the people I talked with oftentimes had their material cleared before I received it. Some of the case officers communicated by writing me long letters first. Those were cleared before I received them. And, and, and there were cases where I did real interviews, and I didn't ask CIA to vet those. So I did have time to, for free, open conversation with officers, all of whom are outside. And I think um, I said to them, you got, you've been through a career in the CIA. I'm not interested in hurting the national security. I'm interested in telling a story. So use your discipline. And let's talk about the things that are on this page that the CIA has given me. So it, the thing is that when I approach people for the interviews, I had the declassified documents already. So I was asking them about experiences for which the CIA had already shown they were prepared to declassify. There were things that they redacted from those documents. Um, sometimes that was a puzzle I had to struggle over. Uh, but I did not take an oath. I did not work inside the system. I told the CIA, I'm an independent journalist. I like to tell the story. But I respect the boundaries, and I'll do my best on the outside to tell the story. I think that we'll have time for one last question up here in the front, and late wait for us all to come. Yeah. I'm just curious about the quality of Tokachev's engineering work. Was he a good engineer, and how was his life outside of spying? Tokachev was a um, interesting product of the Soviet system. He was 14 years old when the German Air Force, when the Luftwaffe, attacked Moscow. Remember, the attack on Moscow came one month after this German invasion. And this, um, somebody, this attack on Moscow as a young man produced a great fear in the Soviet leadership because they had very primitive radar. The West had very good radar. So young Tokachev was sucked up into this effort to find young people who could be taught about radar. He went to high school and studied electronics and radar. He went to the equivalent of, of university to study only radar. And he came out and he was assigned to the best radar institute. And so his whole life had been devoted to thinking up ways to improve radar with the memory of those German bombers um, when he was 14 years old. So from my understanding of his career, he was creative. He was often a guy who would try and puzzle out solutions. And remember, the Soviet Union was not ahead in this field. They were years behind the West. Um, one of the reasons is that Stalin had imprisoned some of their best radar experts, thinking they were disloyal. And Tolkachev's generation came up um, they were given the kind of resources they needed and told, you know, we've got to catch up. And radar is extremely important in, when you think about conventional warfare in all kinds of ways. The Soviets had to discover, even during the Cold War, when planes are going faster than the speed of sound, how do you make radar work? How do you catch and see the other guy? And can he see you? And so this was a, a constant priority of the state. And Tokachev was in that spot where they looked to somebody to solve the electronic problems. He would at home sometimes at night, you know, try and think, oh, I thought of a way to do that. And he would sketch it out on a napkin. And then he would go back to work the next morning and he would type it up or draw it out and give it to a secret, uh, like, inventor's pool where the material would be absorbed into the system. He worked in a giant state-sponsored system that tried to compete with the West in, in these difficult 
Well, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in the International Spy Museum in thanking David Hoffman for taking the time to be here. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings. And thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.